turn your Bibles. I hope you have a Bible with you. And uh, whether printed or electronic, I hope you uh, uh, make a diligent effort to look up verses, to have your Bible open, to uh, be engaged. It's a great privilege to own the Bible in so many formats. And uh, we want to be a church and are committed to be in church where you, you need to bring your Bible because you're taught the Bible. And uh, so I want you to open it there and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at verses 29 through 34. We're in a series called Rise Up. Rise Up. And the reason it's called Rise Up is because we're studying 1 Corinthians 15, which is the number one chapter in the Bible for the doctrine of the bodily resurrection. Both Jesus's in the past, which we typically think of, but in reality, the chapter is ultimately about our bodily resurrection in the future. And this is the main chapter. And even though the resurrection of all believers lies in the future, the value of this chapter is that the resurrection provides motivation for daily transformation. The resurrection provides motivation for daily transformation. Even though it's an event that's going to happen in the future, and listen, for the church we've learned in this series, it could happen at any moment. Jesus could come back and rapture His church, but before He translates His church, He will resurrect the dead in Christ of the church age. And that could happen at any moment. And that will set in motion the rest of the end-time events that will culminate with everything being subjected to God so that God is all in all. And even though that's kind of future-oriented, even though that's future-oriented, this passage provides motivation for living in the present. And here's what it reminds us. And I'm just saying this by way of review. It reminds us that living for the Lord is not in vain in light of the resurrection. Living for the Lord is not in vain in light of the resurrection. Let's review a little bit of the chapter. Look at verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, we're reminded that holding fast to the true gospel is essential for salvation. Then in verses 3 through 11, we saw that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of those essentials of the gospel and that it's central to it, and we should not leave it out of our tracks. We should not leave it out of our, our gospel presentations. We should have it as part of our mindset that this is one of the fundamentals of our faith. It's essential to the gospel. And then in verses 12 through 19, we saw that it's so essential, in verses 12 through 19, that if you deny the future bodily resurrection of believers, it starts a destructive domino effect where seven essential truths and, and, and realities are destroyed if you deny the future bodily resurrection of believers. And the first thing we deny is the bodily resurrection of Jesus in the past. The two are interconnected. In verses 12 through 19, there's seven what-ifs that set this domino in effect. Listen, you mess with the gospel, you mess with your salvation. And uh, that's really the message. And then we moved into verses 12 through tw or 20 through 28. And it's like after going through all these what-ifs and these destructive domino effects, Paul says, I've had enough. I've got to proclaim the truth. And he says in verse 20, 
but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Let's stop the what ifs. Let's get back to reality. What, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And we spent several weeks looking at verses 20 through 28 and seeing how what Christ did in the past set in motion the resurrection of believers in the future and guarantees that what happened in the past is going to happen for us in the future. I love this idea of verses 20 through 28 that rising up will get us to the end that God intends. Resurrection is essential to what God is accomplishing in history. Without it, the end that He intends for all of us will not happen. But rising up is not simply to impact the future. And that brings us now to 29 through 34, where we're going to be today and and next week. This isn't just for the future. It impacts the present. There is resurrection motivation for living for the Lord right here in the present. Now look at uh, verse 29. We see the importance of this for us today in 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 that first word. Look at verse 29. It says, Otherwise, what will those do? Otherwise, what will those do? And if you have an NIV, it says, Now, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then what? You know, and, and what he's saying is, Look, now that I laid this all out, I want to bring us back to right now. And I want you to show, I want to show you right now the practical motivation. Of what these uh, of what the resurrection means. So let's look at verses 29 through 34. Uh, look at them. I'll read them, and then we'll and then we're going to look at only the first verse today, and I'll tell you why that is. Let's look. Or actually, as I read it, you'll know why that might be. Verses 29 through 34. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now, the, the main idea of this passage is real simple. What's the main idea of this passage? It's simply this. Our beliefs about the future impacts our behavior in the present. Our beliefs about the future impacts our behavior in the present. And by the way, that's true whether you're a believer or not or an unbeliever. That's true whether what you believe about the future is true or if it's wrong. This these verses is making a point that what you believe about the future impacts your behavior. And the problem is sometimes what we believe and how we act are contradicting one another, and that's what this is about. Our beliefs about the age to come impacts our behavior in the present age. Specifically, here's what he's saying. I have this written in your notes. Specifically, what you believe about your future bodily resurrection impacts how you live right now in the present. 
Personally, here's what he's saying. I, I'm just trying to get you to look at the main idea in a couple ways. Personally, here's what he's saying. How you live in the present reveals what you really believe about the future. How you live in the present, personally, how you're living right now, reveals what you really think is going to happen in the future. And on a practical level, and this is very practical and really very convicting, People see what you believe about life after death by how you live in the present. You see, we, by how we live, Monday through Saturday, even on Sunday, how we live, people can look and say, well, that, this, I, I think I can see what they believe about the future. And that's what we're going to explore. Listen, how you live right now in the present is revealing what you truly believe about the future. What you think you believe about the future and what you say you believe about the future may be very different from what your present lifestyle reveals about what you believe about the future. And so here's what Paul's going to do in these passages for all of us, myself included. He's going to show the Corinthians and us four ways that our future rising up, our future bodily resurrection, should impact our present living right now. Or you could look at it this way. We're going to see four ways to measure whether how you're living today reveals what you say you believe about the future after you die. And so we're going to dive into this four ways our future rising impacts our present living. And we're going to only look at the first one today. And we're only going to look at one verse. And the reason we're going to look at this one verse and spend the rest of our time on it is because it is literally the hardest verse in the entire New Testament to understand. It's the hardest verse in the entire New Testament to interpret. And so we're going to take some time. You say, well, if it's so hard, you know, why do we want it? You know, well, and let me, let me say this at the beginning. And I also don't know what it means. And I've been studying it for a month. I've got a file folder that big of articles, and I don't know what it means. And so you're going to take the rest of the time tell me you don't know what it means, and why are we doing this? Well, here's why. Because of the impact that this verse has, that no one really knows what it means on cults and on practices of uh, Mormons right here in Kansas City. That's why we're going to analyze it. That's why we're going to look at it. Because here's the power of the cults. They take our ignorance and they fill it with their falsehood. And so we're going to look at a verse and not skip over it because it's difficult. Not skip over it because no one knows what it means, including me. But we're going to look at it so you're familiar with it. So if you do encounter friends, neighbors, loved ones who are Mormons or others who believe that you should be baptized for your dead relatives, you will know and not be ignorant and you will know that no one knows and then you can tell them. You think you know, but no one knows. And here's why no one knows. So let's take a look at it. Here's the first thing. Uh, the first way future rising impacts our present living. What we believe about our future bodily resurrection impacts what we seek for the dead in the present. It impacts what we seek. How you believe about the future impacts what you will seek for your dead relatives. What you will seek for in the present for your dead loved ones. And that's very important because I, I bet hardly anyone here doesn't have someone who they have loved who is 
an unbeliever or even a believer. And you've lost them and you know that there's there's hope of the resurrection. But, you know, what should you seek for them? And there's all sorts of answers to that question, but we're going to look at a biblical answer. The answer is in verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Well, probably the hardest verse to understand in the entire Bible, like I just said. One scholar says uh, there are at least 200 different interpretations of this one verse. 200 different interpretations. I don't doubt that, but I will bless you by not going through all 200 of them. Others say that there are 30 to 40 major ways of understanding. Yeah, there's 200, but when you really group them together, there's 30 or 40. Not helping me just yet, okay? Basically, though, it comes down to three to four main ways to approach this very difficult verse. But just about time you think there's three to four, then you're like, well, no, there's this other option. And, well, I don't know. It's just confusing. So let's begin by looking at this verse by asking this question. Why so many un, uh, why why are there so many unanswered questions about this? Because when you look at this verse, we don't know what being baptized for the dead really means. We don't know who was doing the baptizing. We don't know who was being baptized. We don't know why they were being baptized for the dead, and we don't know whether it benefited the living person who was being baptized, or was it meant to benefit the dead person they were being baptized for? That's a lot of unanswered questions. Why is this verse so hard? Let me give you a couple of reasons. First of all, why is this verse so hard to understand? The most simple understanding of the verse contradicts the rest of Scripture. The most simple, straightforward understanding of this verse contradicts the rest of Scripture. In fact, one commentator says, and I agree with him, if this, if baptizing for dead in the place of dead people or for dead people was not so controversial, everybody would know what this, how this verse lays out and what it means. Okay, it's just that what's obvious in the original language in the English. See, is so contradictory to the rest of Scripture. Here's the straightforward understanding of the grammar of this verse. It points to one meaning, and it's this meaning. Some people, well known to both Paul and the Corinthians, that's why you know he just says, you know, he, he, he knows who they are, the Corinthians know who they are, and he says some people were being baptized for the benefit of and in the place of dead people. Now, that's the plain meaning, the most straightforward meaning. But all of you that know your Bible ought to be saying, what in the world? What in the world? Have I not been doing something I should be doing? What, what, what is going on? I mean, that just doesn't make sense. So that's, that's, that's why it's difficult. Nowhere in the entire Bible, Old Testament or New, is baptism. And in fact, I try to rack, rack my mind. I don't think you can find any ritual in the Bible that the living do on behalf of the dead. Definitely not baptism. So what's going on here? That's why it's hard to understand. Another reason why it is hard to understand is, number two, nothing that comes before or after this verse really helps us to understand its meaning. In other words, the context is no help. But when you're trying to understand a hard verse, 
What is the Bible students cheer? Context, context, context. The only problem is the context is little or no help for this verse. We see what came before, God may be all in all. We see what comes after in verses 30 through 32. Paul talks about him, his sacrificial uh, ministry of risking his life to plant churches. And then in verses 33 and 34, he directly addresses the Corinthians. But who are these people in verse 29? He just says it and he moves on. What, is clear, what was clearly known to Paul in the Corinthians is virtually unknown in history and to us. This practice is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible and even in the historical background of Corinth. If you study the background of Corinth, you don't find people being baptized for dead people. You look at church history and apart for a, a one cult and, uh, and a present-day uh, cult, uh, no one talks about this. No one is doing this. We just don't know what they knew. They knew what it meant. We don't. Number three, another reason this is hard to understand is because Paul mentions being baptized for the dead without condemning it, correcting it, or commanding it. Okay? He, he just kind of, he says, look, there's, there's these people, you know it, I know it, that are baptizing for the dead. And if the dead don't rise, why are they doing this? But he doesn't really say, hey, I think it's great, keep doing it. And he doesn't really say, it's bad, stop doing it. And we know the Corinthians did crazy things. And when they did crazy things in this letter, he usually told them, you're doing crazy things, stop it. But he just mentions this. It's very hard to imagine that if this was a good thing, uh, or that if this was a bad thing, rather, which we tend to approach it as being bad, if it's a bad thing, why didn't he say, stop doing that? That's dumb. Quit it. Stop it. And yet, he doesn't say, oh, I think this is a great thing. I do it all the time myself. So, he's kind of neutral. Was he for it? Was he against it? What's going on here? That impacts uh, what we were doing. In fact, listen, all we know is that he and the Corinthians knew some people, perhaps not even members of, the, uh, of their church. It says, notice he says, otherwise, what will those do? Typically in this letter, if it's something the Corinthians are doing, he says, you're doing this. Second person, you're doing this. Or he says, some of you, like earlier, I think it's verse 12 of this chapter, he says, some of you are denying. But he doesn't say, otherwise, why are some of you doing this? He says, those who do this. So it may not even be Corinthians. It may not even be believers. We just don't know. Number four. A fourth reason why this verse is difficult is only heretical groups and cults use this verse to promote to promote being water baptized for the benefit of the dead. For instance, I've been here 25 years. You've never heard me teach, hey, get baptized. We're having baptism next week for all your dead relatives. Please sign up. Okay? You don't, you don't, hear, you don't hear anybody on the radio. You don't, you, don't, you don't hear people do that, except two groups really stand out in church history. The Marcionites, back in 150 A.D., took this verse, and on the basis of this verse... If someone died in their group, 
that had that believed in Christ, even though they were a heretical group, they professed a faith in Christ. They believed in Christ, but they died without water baptism. If they died without water baptism, then another of their group would be baptized in their name. So, let's say, you know, uh, if, if my mom died without being baptized, I've already believed in Christ, I've already been baptized, my mom dies, is not able to be water baptized, so I'd say, I'd like to be baptized for the name, uh, in the name, or for the name, or for the person of Gene Regis. Now, what they would do, it gets a little weird, the living person would get under the bed of the dead person, and they would address the dead person and say, would you like to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? And the living person underneath would say, yes, as though the dead person was affirming, emphasizing emphasizing the importance that baptism follows a profession, a, a, a voluntary you know, desire to be baptized. And then that person would come out from under the bed and be baptized on behalf of and for the benefit of the dead. Now, that's it in church history. I mean, that's just pretty much it. That is it. Until you come to the 1840s and Joseph Smith and the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, pardon the pun, resurrects baptism for the dead. Now, the Mormons use this same verse, just like the Marcionites do, to justify their practice of being water baptized to give the dead another chance to be saved. So their take on it is a little different. Their take is, it gives those who die without being Mormons a first chance if they have never heard about Mormonism, or a second chance if they heard about it and rejected being a Mormon, a second chance after they die to truly be saved, which means becoming a, a Mormon. Now, this gets a little offensive because it sounds at first like you're, they're, they're, they're going to make a decision for dead people to become Mormons. But they emphasize this, it does not automatically make you a Mormon. But it gives them another opportunity after death to accept or reject being a Mormon. So by being baptized for a dead relative, you're giving a, as a Mormon, because this is only valid if you're a Mormon. So as a Mormon, if I get baptized for a dead relative who died without being a Mormon, then I am giving them a second chance to be presented the opportunity to really be part of God's real true church, the Mormon church. Baptism for the dead used to be used only for those related to a Mormon going back four generations. So, originally, you could be baptized for a dead relative going back four generations, which would mean you'd have to know your genealogy, right? Now, what are Mormons known for? They're known for having the most extensive, exhaustive, and accurate genealogies in the entire world. In fact, if you want to do some genealogy uh, research on your family, the place to go to is the Mormon archives. Why? Why are they doing that? Why do they have these extensive? Because they get baptized by the day around the world, including the temple that's right up north here, here in Kansas City, they're being baptized by the millions on behalf of dead people, giving them another chance to become a part of the Mormon church. 
that genealogy record based on this one verse is a missionary opportunity for more people to become Mormons. Isn't that wild? Hey, you know what I just shared with you? I just shared with you that what you believe about the future impacts how you live today. See, I just showed you the reality of what Paul is trying to teach in this passage. That what you believe about the future does impact how you live today. The reason they have all those genealogies is because they believe in the future there's going to be opportunity for dead people to become Mormons. So, as young as the age of 12, Mormons are encouraged, men for men, women for women, to be water baptized on behalf of not only their own dead relatives, but now it's okay to do it for anyone who is dead. And that means, because there are millions of Mormons doing this repeatedly on a daily basis, very likely no one in this room does not have a dead relative who has been water ba- that, that a Mormon has been baptized in their name somewhere along your geneolo- genealogical line. So let me, uh, uh, the temple in Kansas City, the cool thing about a Mormon temple, and I don't mean that, you know, like they're, they're cool, but the cool thing about their temples is when they build one, uh, us unbelievers, non-Mormons, get to tour that, and then it closes, and then no one gets in except Mormons. And so uh, Roberto and I, I took my family, we went and toured that, and uh, we saw the baptismal pool there with the 12 oxen uh, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, you go up into a changing room, and it's like those movies about heaven where everything's painted white, and the lockers are all painted white, and their clothes are in there. And and more, uh, Roberto got so excited about the tour that he had to go to the bathroom. And so he talked to the Mormon elder that was our guide, and he asked to go to the restroom. And I'm telling you, he had to wear footies to go in there because basically we're desecrating the holiness of the white carpet and the white temple to visit it. And there was no way they were going to let Roberto desecrate their bathrooms. He was not allowed to go to the bathroom. And uh, I don't know how the outcome of that was, but uh, I do. Uh, it, it was a fascinating conversation between Roberto and the Mormon elder. So uh, this was such big news that even CNN ran a, uh, a, a segment, Wolf Blitzer, a great guy. Why don't you, somebody hit the lights? Yeah, yeah, about Roberto. Yeah, yeah we're about to amazing. get a rare uh, look inside Man an tries impressive to to building that relatively few people will ever get to see. It's a new Mormon temple, and as CNN's Brian Todd reports, it highlights not only the growing influence of the Mormon church, but also the growing controversy surrounding it. Let's go to Brian. Wolf, this 32,000-square-foot temple will be dedicated next month. For the next three weeks, it's going to be open to the public. A window for a rare look inside a Mormon temple, and it comes at a time when the church is dealing with significant controversy. It's unmistakable, rising up like a castle from the rolling prairie, the gold-leaf statue of the angel Moroni adorning its main spire. The new Mormon temple in Kansas City symbolizes a rare pattern at a time when many faiths see their numbers in North America shrinking. ...of the church worldwide, about six and a half million members of the church in the United States. And for members of the church, this is the house of the Lord. We were shown around by Elder William Walker, a top church official who oversees the operation of 137 temples worldwide, with 30 more on the way. 
How much did it cost to build this? A lot. <laughs> you won't say how much, but it doesn't look like any expense was spared. The chambers are striking. We saw ceiling rooms where weddings take place, an instruction room with a mural depicting Earth as Mormons believe just after creation, and the pristine celestial room, the most sacred space inside, for reflection and meditation, complete with crystal chandeliers. This is the biggest room you'll find in the temple. There's no large sanctuary. The purpose of the temple is not for a big meeting. Uh, we have other chapels uh, and throughout the church and throughout the world assembly halls and meeting halls and when we come to the temple this is more for private and individual communion while we were given an extensive tour the church denied our request to record it and instead provided these pictures i asked walker if that doesn't play into perceptions right or wrong that the church is secretive it's not about secret it's about sacred and we feel that it's a very sacred and a special place and therefore is reserved for those worship functions and those ordinances that take place in the temple is not about secret. Come on in, out of the way. But once the temple closes its doors to the public next month, not even all Mormons will be allowed in. Worshippers are supposed to wear white when they come in here on a normal basis. During these visits, we have to wear foot coverings so we don't mess up the carpets. Now, once this place is dedicated, uh, you cannot come past this front desk, what's called the recommend desk, unless you have a recommendation from your local Mormon church leader. Inside, the ornate baptismal font resting on 12 oxen, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. But the font also symbolizes controversy for the LDS church. Here, they'll perform hundreds of posthumous baptisms, specifically for Mormons' ancestors who were not of the faith, an invitation to accept Mormonism as an avenue into heaven. But some Mormons have used the church's genealogy database to baptize others who are not Mormon ancestors, like murdered Jewish reporter Daniel Pearl and Holocaust victims like Anne Frank, a practice that has outraged Jewish leaders. The critics say that this speaks of a theological arrogance and intolerance, that you believe your faith is the only avenue in which to get into heaven. What do you say to that? Well, I would say to that Jesus didn't say that this is just for people of a particular persuasion. Jesus taught it's necessary to be baptized to enter the kingdom of heaven. Walker says there's no desire to offend anyone. He says the church views this as a loving, kind gesture, but is cracking down on those who violate their policy. When I asked him how he would respond to those who say the damage is done, that too many people have already been offended by posthumous baptisms, Elder Walker said maybe we didn't do some things as well as we should have. He said we would tell them we're sorry, but we live by our word when we say we'll do something about it. Wolf? Brian's out in Kansas City for us. Thanks, Brian. Well, that's kind of interesting. You pick up a couple things there. The reason that they think baptism for the dead is so important is because you can't enter God's kingdom without being baptized, which, you know, isn't biblical. And the one question about, hey, you're exclusive. The problem is not exclusivity. The gospel is ex exclusive. There is only one way. The problem is you're doing something on behalf of someone that you haven't asked their permission. Okay, and you can't because they're they're dead. Okay, you you got it. All right. Well, let's 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 uh, look at this. Um, if Mormons even admit that this practice does not show up anywhere really in church history, other than the Marcionites that we already talked about. But what they say is, this is a Pauline practice that we have resurrected, we have restored to the church, all based on this one verse. 
So that's what makes this verse so hard. And as you can see on that, right there on CNN, right here in Kansas City, it is rather important to address this verse, even though no one knows really what it means. Now, whatever this verse may mean, the Bible teaches three truths very clearly. So I want you to get this. Whatever this verse may mean, the Bible does teach three truths very clearly and very often repeatedly in the Bible. Number one, no one gets water baptized before they are saved or in order to be saved. Look at all the water baptisms in the book of Acts and no one is saved before, uh, no one is baptized before they're saved as babies, as children. They're all baptized after they are saved and not to be saved because they're already saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If baptism was a part of salvation, then we could boast, I've been baptized. And that's exactly what's going on here. It's not just about helping the dead for a Mormon. It's about, hey, look at me. Look how, how many times have you been baptized for dead people? All right, It's a work. In fact, that's why one reason why they would do this. Because they have a work salvation. And the important thing about working for your salvation, you've got to keep giving people a work to do. And what better way to keep people busy working for their salvation than getting baptized for everyone who's ever died? That's going to keep you going for a while. In fact, you can get baptized for a dead person as a Mormon like ten times in a row in one day. Okay? Wear earplugs. Now, only believers who are already saved by faith alone and Christ alone are water baptized in the Bible. And only believers are baptized in the New Testament. And no one is baptized in the place of dead people or in place of another living person. That just doesn't happen in the New Testament. Number two, the second thing that's clearly taught is that the eternal destiny of the dead is determined before they die, not after they die. The eternal destiny of the dead is determined before they die, not after they die. There are no second chances for salvation in the new, in, in, taught in the Bible. Hebrews 9.27 is the key verse. It is appointed unto man, what? Once to die, and after this, the judgment. Not after this, a second chance. Whether that's the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught in the Bible or whether it's the Mormon gospel. There aren't second chances. Number three, the third thing that's clearly taught is that neither the living nor the dead can change the eternal destiny of anyone after they die. Neither the living nor the dead can change the eternal destiny of anyone after they die. I point you to the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. Lazarus, a believer, is dead. The rich man, an unbeliever, has died. They're both dead. But there is a gap, a chasm between the saved and the unsaved after you die that cannot be separated, cannot be crossed over. And, well, let me, let's look, go ahead and turn there. Luke 16, I do want to read you a portion of this, of this passage. Because it does mention the resurrection, which I think is kind of interesting. Luke chapter 16, verses 26 through uh, 31. The rich man's suffering, eternal damnation, eternal, eternal judgment in the fires of God's wrath. And he asks 
Abraham to send Lazarus to bring him some relief? And here's the answer. Verse 26, Besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able... Even the most merciful person that wants to give some relief cannot do that. And none may cross over from there to us. If you want to escape hell after you die and go to heaven, you cannot do that. Verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And what he's telling us there is, Jesus has risen from the dead. But nobody's going to believe that. Even if they saw him walk right out of the tomb, if you don't take God at his word. It's faith in the gospel before you die that determines your eternal salvation. So, what are the main ways of understanding this verse? Well, there's four, I'm, I'm, that's four out of 200, okay? So I did restrain myself, help you out a little bit. Uh, none of them are really uh, uh, satisfactory, but we'll look at them just briefly. One, one way of looking at, and there's like, a dozen ways to look at each one of these four ways, okay? So I, there's, I'm not even going to begin to try to explain it all. Number one, superstitious or syncret, uh, syncretistic views to spiritually benefit the dead. Syncretism is simply the blending of several religions together. And so it's just a super, superstitious view to spiritually benefit the dead. And... and they say that 1 Corinthians 15.29 is talking about living people undergoing water baptism to somehow help the dead to be saved or to help themselves get over the death of a loved one. And so it's, it's, it's not biblical what's going on here. It's just the Corinthians or someone has mixed up Bible with superstition, with false religion, and somehow they're doing this to benefit the dead you see the contemporary example of this view in the Mormon church. The second view, oh, and let me say this. If that's the case, if it's an unbiblical, crazy thing that the Corinthians are doing, why doesn't Paul rebuke them? So it's like, that doesn't seem likely. Number two, syntactical views that change the sentence structure to make biblical sense. This is like something you and I would do. We love God's Word. We want every verse to be clear. So let's kind of change the sentence structure. Let's change the syntax. Let's make it help it make biblical sense. And so I literally have what one commentator, guys get paid to come up with these ideas. Uh, it, you know, he restructures the sentence, and he's basically saying, why are you getting baptized? Remember, baptized means buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Why are you going through this symbol? Why are you being baptized when you don't even believe the dead are raised? Why baptize if you don't believe the dead are raised? Now, the, only, the problem with this verse is, one, if you have to restructure the sentence, it's probably not the right view, okay? I mean, if it's that hard... You know, if you have to go through that ever, I really like it, 
I just don't see it. And if I didn't have your book, I would never see it. Okay, so that's probably not right. Second of all, uh, Paul implies that it's just some people, and may, might, may not even be the Corinthians, but all the Corinthians are baptized. So if this refers, if he's talking to them about, hey, why do you all get baptized? He sure didn't say that very clearly. I don't think that flies. Number three, sincere views that seek to honor the dead, that seek to honor dead believers who martyred them or ministry led them to be saved. Now, in this case, they interpret it in this way. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized not for the dead, but because of the dead. Dead martyrs, dead believers who were so faithful in their ministry that they died for Christ. And because their ministry was so faithful and they died for what they believe, I got saved and I got baptized because of their great death, their great martyrdom. Well, this has a little more, uh, makes a little sense, but it seems odd that Paul, again, would not approve of such thinking because you don't get baptized in the name of another person. Who do you get baptized? In the name of Jesus. In fact, Paul said, I'm glad I didn't baptize hardly any of you guys. So the idea of getting baptized to honor anyone other than Jesus Christ is just odd and really not a Pauline idea. So... Doesn't sound too good there. Number four, a symbolic view that, that, that uh, believers seek to stand in for believers who died without being baptized. This is probably, if you had to say, what are they talking about? This is probably what they're talking about. Baptism is a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, the first step of obedience for a believer is to be baptized. If someone dies without being baptized, they're still saved. But maybe there were those who wanted to be baptized and stand in for believers who died without being baptized. If I had to say what it means, I'd say it probably means that. But the bottom line is this. Say it with me. We just don't know. We just don't know for sure what this verse means. But we do know the point of what Paul was trying to make. And we'll talk about that next week. There is a per you know, just because we don't know what verse 29 meant, don't throw your Bible away today. Don't throw your faith away. Don't become a Mormon because they know something that we don't know. We know why this verse is in there, and we'll talk about the practical mean uh, uh, application of it next week. But here's... I want to give you six takeaways from why this verse is important. And here's the first. Number one, interpret unclear passages by clear passages. Can I get an amen? All right? You interpret unclear passages by clear passages. Clear passages should be used to throw light on unclear passages, not the other way around. So you don't take this unclear mysterious verse and develop a whole doctrine of baptism for the dead and start interpreting everything else in light of this one verse. Instead, you take all the clear truths and you say, it can't be teaching anything that contradicts these clear things. That's number one. Number two, don't build your doctrine or application on unique, ambiguous, or obscure passages. 
or passages where there's 200 interpretations and no church history practice except by heretical or cultic groups. Make sense? You know, if I'm going to ba- if I'm going to start baptizing, getting myself baptized for millions of dead people, I'm not going to base it on this verse. I'm going to need a little more evidence to start building a doctrine. Um, a truth, the more times a truth is repeated, does not make it more true. Okay, something can be said once in Scripture, and if it's in Scripture and it's said as truth, it is truth. But here's the thing. The main truths are repeated, repeatedly, repeated times. In other words, those things that are most important... You like that, didn't you? Those things that are most important are repeated many times. Like salvation by faith alone, apart from baptism. Like baptism is the first step of obedience after you're saved. Not before you're saved. Or after you die. Okay? Number three. This is an important one. And it's hard for those with a teaching gift. When you don't know what a verse means, humbly admit it rather than making something up. Okay, you can with two hundred versions of this, it's hard for people to do that. Okay, and 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 listen, if you believe like we do as a church that the Bible is God's word, that's why I didn't want to skip over this verse because we do need to tackle it. We do need to wrestle with it because it is in God's word, even if we don't know what it means. But the bottom line is, when you don't know what it means, don't twist the text, don't change the syntax, don't, don't force something on it. Just admit, you know what? Not sure what this one means. Number four, you might not always know what a particular verse means, but we almost always know why it's included in the passage. And I'm going to show you why it's included in the passage next week. So, the verse has value. If for nothing else, it sets the pace, ironically, for the rest of this passage. I'll show you why next week. Number five. The vast majority of the Bible is clear and easily understood by believers who are willing to make the effort to study it. Don't let this lesson or this verse, you know, again, don't throw your Bible away saying, I'll never understand it. There's 200, there are not 200 uh, options on every verse of the Bible, Okay. Unbelievers want you to think that. Skeptics think that. But the reality is, the vast majority of the Bible is very easy to understand. And, and, and with a skeptic, while I will listen to their arguments and, and, and try to uh, uh, guide them, at the end of the day, it comes down to this. What part of John 3.16 do you not understand? For God so loved the world, and that includes you. That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, that includes you, should not perish, but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. There's, there's just, what part of Ephesians 2, 8, 9 do we not understand? But, I will tell you this. The clear meaning of the Bible doesn't lie on the service, surface. Proverbs 2 says you've got to dig for it like treasure. So if you come to the Bible with, a, with an apathy or an a, 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 a attitude of, hey, God ought to just make everything clear to me without me putting any effort, you'll get nothing about, out of your Bible reading. It is clear, but you've got to put effort into studying it. And then number six, and I'd be remiss, today is the day of salvation. Don't waste it by not receiving Christ. Listen, you don't get a second chance. The Mormons aren't going to help you. 
Lazarus can't help you. There's a divide. There's a destiny, and it's determined right now. So if you do not know Christ today, if you are in doubt today, receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. But, since most of us have done that, today is the day of salvation for the lost. Don't forsake sharing Christ because we are, as long as someone's living, they can't get saved. But once they're gone, they're gone. And let's not let our friends, let not, let's not let our family, let's not let our co-workers, let's not let our students that we study with, let's not let any of them enter into eternity without having heard from us a simple presentation of the gospel. Amen? All right. Let's pray. Father, we come and uh, we're thankful that we have the word and we thank, we're thankful that the vast majority of it is clear. It's about you, about how you came and how you're coming again and how the end of history is everything's going to be submitted to you. Some for salvation, some for judgment. Lord, I pray um, we probably have friends and neighbors who are Mormons and we don't want to use this lesson to mock them. We don't want to use this lesson to, to judge them, uh, criticize them as much as use this lesson to better understand why they do what they do and how we can build a bridge to them in order to share a gospel that is free of works, free of having to earn your salvation, free access to the living temple Jesus Christ and His living congregations where you don't have to go through a lobby and you don't have to have a person, a human person, giving His approval for you to enter. But Lord, there is free access to you, uh, to the true God through His Son, Jesus Christ. We praise, the, praise you for this and pray that we'll leave grateful for having uh, uh, received it. In Jesus' name, amen.